According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 2 is our text this morning. Matthew chapter 2. You know, Gary, I'm about ready to give up on that uh, doorstopper routine. <laughs> We've tried for, what, two years now? and Yeah. Maybe we just need to have a class occasionally where we can tell people that we're intentionally keeping that doorstopper down. Yeah. Things would change, actually, if we replaced those doors with glass, you know, French door type things where we could see the hallway. Anyway, the whole idea is to keep that door propped so that uh, the the back row person stationed there can watch the the external glass doors and see if any strangers come in and any uh, trouble coming in, headed back towards the classroom and that kind of thing. All right. Matthew chapter 2, we are approaching the end of, our fir- of this section of the Harmony of the Gospels titled Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. We're about ready to launch into the next portion, uh, which is uh, focused mainly on the ministry of John the Baptist and content that is primarily in uh, the Gospel of John. Um, the numbers that you see on the board, 13 and 14, apply to the Harmony of the Gospels outline that you have been provided with. All right. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning once again to assemble together and to receive instruction. We ask for your hand and blessing upon us this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are looking at Matthew chapter 2, and we have seen so far the uh, dream message that Joseph received under point one. After the Magi had obeyed their dream instructions, Joseph also received a dream. The material that's in verse 13 and following, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Under point two, Joseph's obedience was immediate. And did we get that far? How far did we get last week? We got to point two. Okay. Because there was quite a bit of material under point one with subpoints, And I'm just going to race right through them here quickly. Under point one, we had subpoint A, the four imperatives, which included get up, take, flee, and remain. The four imperatives that are found here in the instructions that Joseph was uh, given in verse 13. Get up, take, flee, and remain. When we observed his obedience... Before we observe his obedience, we also noted an explanation that was given under point B. An explanation. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So commands are given. Also, an explanation is offered. 
a passage that's not uh, in the notes, that's not on the board, but one that we turned to was back in Genesis where we looked at Abraham and we looked at the explanation that he was given. Very important concept that we start to understand that when God is dealing with fellow workers, when God is dealing with adult sons, when he's dealing with believers from the standpoint of spiritual maturity, he offers explanations. And uh, we saw the explanation that he offered with respect to Abraham. He said, shall I hide from, a- from Abraham what I'm, about to, what I'm about to do in terms of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Likewise here. Uh, remember, God is not obligated to give explanations to anybody for anything for any reason. He doesn't have to tell us why we're doing what we're doing. He simply gives instructions and we either obey or disobey and so forth, face the consequences. Um, verse 13 could have ended simply with get up, take, flee and remain. Uh, remain there until I tell you. That that explanation for, the explanatory gar and the, the for explanation, I think it's gar, but whatever the explanation is there, doesn't have to be there. God is giving additional information to Joseph that Joseph may apply the word of God accurately, and he does so. Point two, let's see, there's the search and destroy vocabulary. And then point two, Joseph's obedience was immediate. Matthew 2.14, he didn't wait until the morning. It's while it was still night. He did not wait until morning. When you know what the will of God is, why delay? Why take forever? <laughs> if you know it's God's will and you know that it's... And of course, God's will does include timing. And so if you know that it is God's will and the timing is now, then do it now. See, as Joseph illustrates for us. Now, his obedience under subpoint A. Joseph got up, took, left, and remained. And you can write this down any way you like. You can write it down with the Greek vocabulary if you like. And it's important that you do so at least to notice the distinction between uh, flee and leave as uh, we highlighted for you as we were running out of time last week. Joseph got up. That's a gero, the vocabulary we saw from his command. He took. That's paralambano. Again, the vocabulary that we examined from the command. He left which is anakoreo, different vocabulary from what he was told to do. He was told to get up, take, flee, and, le- and remain. The, the imperative he was given was fugo, was to flee. And he does flee because he leaves. And yet the vocabulary is different between fugo to flee and anakoreo to leave. And I think we uh, established that and gave enough uh, comment on that last week. And then finally, he remained, the verb to be, the, the state of verb of, of Aini, uh, to be. So he got up, he took, he left, and he remained in Egypt until told otherwise. Now, the whole idea of anakoreo, to withdraw or to retire or to take refuge, I'm going to pass over that again this morning. Um, I think we dealt with that well enough last week. Running away is not always wrong. See, just as um, concepts uh, uh, such as boasting, other concepts where there's a right way and a wrong way, there's a right boasting, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Of course, there's a wrong boasting where with selfishness and pride and arrogance, you're boasting in yourself uh, with jealousy. There's a right jealousy. God himself is a jealous God. He says his name is jealous. Uh, Paul said that he was jealous over uh, local churches with a godly jealousy. There's a right form of jealousy. And then, of course, there's the wrong form of jealousy. Same thing with fleeing, with retreating, with taking refuge. There's a time to do so and a time not to do so. 
We will see repeatedly the story of our Savior's life is fleeing again and again and again and again when they take up stones to kill him, when they try to throw him off a cliff, a variety, when they try to take hold of him and make him king. There was another fleeing event, all right? Fleeing occurs until the Garden of Gethsemane, in which case there is no more fleeing because as the son tells the father, the hour has come. And so there's no more fleeing. When the soldiers arrive and Judas uh, kisses him, there's no more fleeing. He submits to the arrest and he goes to the cross. There is, by the way, a, a whole study on fleeing. And if you're interested in it, we can get those notes to you. I'm not sure that we have them run off at the moment, but um, they're a part of the Life of David series. And uh, I know that the David notes, the uh, PDF document anyway, is, uh, is on the website. And uh, the Doctrine of Fleeing was a part of the Life of David series. All right, subpoint B, the context for this. Feminine singular genitive of nukes. It occurs in the text as nuktas, the genitive singular, describing the kind of time in which this activity was taking place. It was occurring at night, in the nighttime or by night. So subpoint B, feminine singular genitive of nukes, N-U-X, N-U-X. That V-looking thing that looks like a V isn't a V. It's the Greek letter nu, which is the N. Upsilon looks like a U. And I don't know what the, <laughs> what the C looks like. It's, it's an X, though. It's uh, um, kind of looks like a triple squiggly E-looking thing, maybe, right? That's the X, okay? <laughs> N-U-X. And so the word here is nukes. Uh, in the genitive form, it's nuktas. It's where we get nocturnal in many of our other noct type. Uh, how many other noct words are there besides nocturnal? But <laughs> it's the, the root for the English term. All right. Number 3571. <clears throat> the time words are quite interesting in that they can be placed in a variety of cases. They can be placed in a variety of forms, the genitive, the dative, the accusative form, for example. And depending upon what form they're placed in gives us the application for time. In other words, if it is durative, if it's the duration of time, uh, the, the, the length of time through which something occurs, then uh, we would expect to find it in the accusative case or other senses where it might be in the, in the dative case or the locative sphere. But here in the genitive, it describes the kind, the kind of time, the kind of activity, in which case we render it uh, during or at or by. And while we have the phrase here, by night, this was a night journey, a night travels. And uh, again, indicating the inconvenience of the whole thing or the, uh, the obedience of Joseph in this respect. Remember, the Christian way of life is not necessarily a life of convenience that we may be expected to serve under any uh, time frame or in, under a variety of conditions that are not necessarily pleasant, not necessarily convenient. We will observe this time and time again in the Life of Christ series. The cross was certainly not pleasant, and yet that was the work assignment that the Lord had for, uh, that the Father had for the Lord to obey. Um, we see a number of times in the New Testament Paul speaking of ministering night and day. All right. You know, the word of God is not 
uh, you don't keep banker's hours in the ministry. And that's not just for pastors, that's for all believers. When a brother in Christ calls you up or a sister in Christ comes by and needs encouragement and, and uh, you can't just say, well, hey, you know, call me again in the morning. Um, we're expected to be ready at all times to give an account. We are to be uh, to take up our cross and follow. And that's not just simply uh, nine to five, Monday through Friday. So here's Joseph getting up, takes the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. The final activity actually occurs in verse 15. He remained there. So he obeyed all four of the imperatives. Between verse 14, we see three of them. The fourth one comes in in verse verse 15. He remained there until he doesn't know how long. We know, because this is being written after the fact, we know that he remained there until the death of Herod. We know that it was likely less than a year. Could have even been four months, three months, six months. Uh, But in all likelihood, somewhat less than a year. Point three, Joseph and family remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. Joseph and family remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. Quite often, this is the form of testing that will be the most difficult for you and I to deal with. The question of how long because we don't know. <laughs> we are creatures of time bound by time. We're progressing through the, the time dimension in a linear fashion, in a forward direction. We can't turn back the clock. We can't go back and redo things maybe that we did not so well. You know, there's, no, there's no do-overs where we can you know, take something back and do it over again. Uh, there might be do-overs all right if we in fact fail or, or perform poorly and so the Lord gives us a retest, but it's not truly a do-over because we can't turn back the clock. We can't undo what has been done. And so we progress and we want to know how long. All right. If you ever want a fun search, do a, a phrase search for that expression, how long? And you'll find quite a few of them in the Psalms. You'll find quite a few of them are David's expressions. See, how long, O oh Lord? Job asked it. A number of people will ask it, how long? We want to know how long is this task going to last? How long will my adversary exult over me? How long will I be downtrodden? How long will you delay and not destroy the wicked? Okay? Joseph and Mary have no idea how long this is going to be. That they have to live in the land of Egypt. They have to live among Egyptians. See? Whereas we understand it to be a, a fairly short time, and going into it, they did not understand the time frame. All right, some context for this now. Subpoint A Herod died in 4 BC. The length of time Joseph and Mary remained in Egypt was likely under one year. Herod died in 4 BC. The length of time Joseph and Mary remained in Egypt was likely under one year. Remember, we're dealing with an estimate of 6 or 5 B.C. for the birth of Christ. We're not uh, trapped into thinking that Christ was born before Christ. We understand that the the B.C. A.D. dating method is is flawed and has been recognized as such now for centuries. The medieval Roman uh, uh, monk that came up with the whole B.C. A.D. dating system uh, was off by a few years, and that's been well known and well documented. So we, we have no problem with... Christ being born before Christ, recognizing that the, the B.C.A.D. method has, has a, a flaw to begin with. 
in your Harmony of the Gospels, there is a dating structure that's listed. If you don't have one of these, feel free to get one um, at the end of class. You won't need one for this class. Um, but the dating system in the left-hand column even uh, indicates 7 B.C. for the announcements to uh, John the Baptist and to Mary. Uh, the song in either 6 or 5, the birth of John the Baptist in 5 B.C., the birth of Jesus Christ in either 5 or 4 B.C. And these are all just estimated dates. The flight into Egypt and, uh, and all the rest. Remember, just because Herod's murdering two-year-old babies and under does not mean that that's how old the Christ was. That's when the star appeared and that's when the Magi began to uh, accumulate their uh, caravans and begin their travels and so forth. So uh, some of the some of the time frame involved is uh, is rather guesswork. Point B. This event fulfilled what may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. This event fulfilled what may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Alright? This event fulfilled fulfilled a messianic prophecy. But let's keep in mind that had this fulfillment not occurred and had it not been revealed in Scripture, we would in all likelihood have been none the wiser. <laughs> we would not have recognized it as a messianic prophecy. And there's a number of issues here in Matthew chapter 2 that uh, we want to focus on, and I don't mind doing so. In fact, if we spent a month here, we'd be very profitable. I don't intend to spend a whole month on Matthew chapter 2. But I want to be able to highlight for you the nature of fulfilled prophecy and the nature of uh, the importance of how we treat the Scriptures as literal interpretationists. All right? So we're going to spend some time in Hosea. Uh, but first of all, though, we're going to read the quotation in Matthew 2. Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. All right. God is not panicking. He's not up there scrambling, trying to find a plan B. You know, it's not like, uh, I usually prefer baseball illustrations because I'm a big baseball guy, but it's football season now. Um, okay, it's still baseball season. I just have ignored it for a while. <laughs> uh, but it's like a quarterback who, um, you know, takes the snap and he drops back and it's a totally busted play. You know, his, his offensive line isn't blocking the way they're supposed to, is receivers aren't running the routes they're supposed to the running back didn't do what he was supposed to do everything's now just out of sorts and the quarterback's standing there and he's about to get creamed by about three or four defensive linemen all right everything is just totally broken down and the plan is totally gone at least for this play and if the quarterback's lucky enough and fast enough maybe he can scramble out of the pocket and get rid of the ball or do something all right you've seen that plenty enough you've watched cowboy games <laughs> all right or the houston texans okay that's not God. God is not the scrambling quarterback running around trying to salvage something out of a busted play. No such thing in the plan of God. From the Alpha 
to the Omega, the plan of God is moving forward and it hasn't, it hasn't missed a beat. It has not missed a beat. The fall of Satan didn't blow God's plan. The fall of man didn't blow God's plan. Any volitional choices man ever makes does not blow God's plan. That is what is absolutely amazing about the sovereignty of God. See, some Calvinists can't handle volition. They can't handle human volition because in their mind that detracts from the sovereignty of God. But let me tell you something. Sovereignty is even more awesome and amazing and impressive when you consider that in God's sovereignty He gave angels and men free will. And with all the volitional choices and all the billions and billions of what-if scenarios, God's sovereignty still maintains His perfect plan from the Alpha to the Omega. And it's not diminished by volition. If anything, it's enhanced by volition. All right? So, this whole effort to murder the babies, this whole satanic effort to destroy the seed of the woman bloodline, which is what we talked about last week, that ever since Cain and Abel... The adversary's efforts have been focused on exterminating the seed of the woman. You with me on that? Did I explain that well enough last week? All right. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fell into sin. They were expelled from the garden, but before he threw them out of the garden, he gave them that promise, the promise of the seed of the woman, that he shall bruise him on the heel, but he shall bruise him on the head. The, the conflict that would come between the serpent and the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will ultimately have victory over the adversary then the redemption of the human race the glorification of the lord jesus christ and the good pleasure of god the father and so ever since cain and abel the adversary has been bent all right <laughs> might even use the idiom hell bent on killing the christ all right killing that seed of the woman before the seed of the woman can crush his head all right so from cain and abel to the uh angelic infiltration of the human race in genesis chapter 6 to populating the land with giants to trying to destroy the nation of israel in bondage in egypt to everything every attempt to destroy the jewish people is an attempt to uh destroy that seed of the woman promise before the seed of the woman can then be revealed so here we have the same thing, the massacre of the babies, and we'll focus more on that here shortly. But now, the whole idea of uh, the, the attempt to murder and all of this, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And that's, that's phrased in the future tense. This is what Herod is going to do. In fact, he's going to do it tomorrow morning. <laughs> all right. But of course, God's plan is way ahead of that. Got it all worked out. Again, Alpha to Omega, all of the, the what-if scenarios of human and angelic volition has already been taken into account. And so the planning is there, the finances are there, the provision is there for uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus to escape to Egypt and remain there for a period of time. Not only is it just simply a, uh, a convenience, not only is it just simply a... Um, expedient to to stash the baby away and, and keep him safe but it is fulfilling a prophecy as quoted in hosea 11 and verse 1 fulfilling a prophecy that israel didn't understand had even been given so let's look at it it says here he remained there until the death of herod to fulfill to fulfill now that's a purpose clause 
A purpose clause, recognizing that when we have purpose clauses, primarily we're dealing with God's purpose. What God's doing and why he's doing it. He does all things for the glory of Jesus Christ. He does all things for his own good pleasure. And the purpose clause for this family of three to be living in Egypt for a period of time was to fulfill, to complete what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. All right. This direct quotation comes to us from Hosea chapter 11. So join me there. Let's go to the Old Testament now. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Alright. One of the easiest of the minor prophets to find because it's the first of the minor prophets and it's 14 chapters long, so it's not that minor, at least in my mind. And uh, chapter 11. Hosea is another spelling, another form of Joshua, another form of Jesus even in terms of the Old Testament. Closely related to Joshua and, and the New Testament, uh, Yeshua, the New Testament in Greek, Jesus, is Hosea. All right. Now, without going into a full context for who Hosea was as a prophet and his wife and all the rest of this, um, just looking at chapter 11. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more, so without even reading any further context, here's Hosea in... 700, 800 B.C., okay? 800 B.C., let's call it 800 B.C. The northern kingdom was swept away in 722 and Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. So let's, uh, let's say 800 years before Christ. If I'm wrong on that, don't hold it against me. This is top of my head here. <laughs> All right. But we're talking centuries after the Exodus over a millennia after the Exodus and, and nearly a millennia before Christ. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Okay. Now, primarily, what is this message dealing with? This is the prophet Hosea. Recounting Israel's faithlessness in the closing years of that northern kingdom as they're going to get swept away for their evil and their idolatry. All right. Primarily, it's looking back. It's looking back. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Looking back to the formation of Israel and the exodus under Moses and the faithfulness of the Lord to bring, them out, bring the nation out of Egypt and establish them as a people. God did all that for them. And what have they done? All right. <laughs> you know, the Lord said, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that set you up as a nation. Baal didn't do that. Why are you sacrificing to Baal? It is I, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. 
but they did not know that I healed them. See, here's a father loving his son from infancy, talking about teaching the little child to walk. Okay? This is, this is the kind of reminiscing that parents and grandparents, I mean, you, you're thinking back to, remember when, you know, old Johnny was a whippersnapper, and I remember when so-and-so was just learning how to walk and all of that, see? And uh, the grief of a parent that did so much for their child, and yet uh, the child that didn't recognize it, didn't understand it, didn't appreciate it, rebelled against it. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. Ephraim, by the way, is generally, uh, in poetic passages, prophetic passages and so forth, is although it was one tribe of the, the tribes of Israel, it comes to represent all of the northern tribes in, in rebellion. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Then it goes on in verses 5 and following and talks about what they're going to do and judgment that's going to come upon them. And, and uh, you can just hear the, the grief and, the, rejo- and the, uh, the, the sorrow in the Lord's voice throughout this pending judgment. Okay, So, verses 1 through 4. Just looking at those verses. Everything appears to be looking back. Everything appears from the, the prophet Hosea's standpoint to be looking back over Israel's history in, in uh, faithful witness to what the Lord had done and then declaring judgment upon Israel for their rebellion in the imminent judgment that was about to befall. There is really, in this passage, no clue that we're also looking ahead. There's no clue that we're also looking ahead. And yet, the Gospel of Matthew makes very clear that the sojourn in Egypt, the time that Joseph and Mary and Jesus spent in Egypt, and the, and the event that brings them back into the promised land is a fulfillment of a prophetic promise, of a messianic promise. Because in Matthew it says this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Again, if you just want to hold your finger at Hosea 11 and look at both passages side by side. To Matthew 2. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. A passage that was not yet fulfilled. Now, from the Old Testament standpoint, it sure seemed fulfilled. (laughs) Doesn't it? When he says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. It seems complete. But see, this is where the uh, the nature of Old Testament uh, prophecies and their New Testament fulfillments is going to be a very important study for us. And why, last week I handed out a handout and why we will hopefully this week get to that material. And uh, 
If not, then next week, certainly. But as it says in her point B now, this event fulfilled what may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. Okay? Let's uh, try to put ourselves back into that time frame. It's kind of hard to do sometimes because of where we are. It's kind of hard to do because we have the advantage of hindsight. 2020 hindsight. All right? We have the opportunity to look back. Here we are in the church. And we have the opportunity to look back to First Advent. And we can see the prophecies fulfilled. All right? And we can list them. Prophecy, 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 all fulfilled. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The virgin prophecy, the Bethlehem prophecy, the out of Egypt I will call my son prophecy, uh, all of the uh, humble and riding on a colt prophecy, all right? Uh, like a, a silent lamb before its shearers. And we see all of the first advent prophecies of the birth, the life, the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ, all of this perfectly fulfilled. We also have the opportunity to look forward to second advent prophecies. Because we see prophecies that are still yet unfulfilled. So I'm using black for the fulfilled and red for the unfulfilled. Right? Jesus Christ has not yet descended with the clouds, with the armies of heaven. He's not yet had victory over the Satan and the forces of darkness. He's not yet conquered the world and achieved the military victory at Armageddon. He's not yet exalted the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. He does not yet reign politically over the nations of the earth. That's all yet future at Second Advent. Okay? I'm going to keep this real simple this morning. Now... Here's where I'm going to try to expand our thinking because we don't want to be trapped. We don't want to be trapped in our, uh, in our perspective here of looking back and looking forward. Okay? Stop and consider that every single prophecy, I'm talking about these and these, every single prophecy is future from the standpoint of when it's given. <laughs> Okay, from the standpoint of when it's given, every single prophecy is future. Okay, because they were all given back in here. Now, it's easy for us now. Let me. Uh, well, I didn't really leave myself much room here, but let's go back to the uh, to the uh, Old Testament and when these prophecies were given. Okay? From the Old Testament standpoint, first advent is still future, second advent is still future, and they don't even know there's two of them. Okay? They don't understand that there are two advents. In some cases, they think they're looking forward to the same event. and They don't understand that there are two events uh, at least 2,000 years apart. All right? And so, you've got all these prophecies. And I'll just list them here. I don't, I don't even count it. How many are there? It doesn't matter. All right? All of, your, all of your black prophecies are back in there. All of your red prophecies are back in there.
the Old Testament prophets had no way to know that some of those were first advent and some of those were second advent. First Peter tells us that, that the prophets who prophesied of old made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what time or person the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he spoke of the, glo- the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay? I, I know I've given you that verse so many times, I can just rattle it off the top of my head. <laughs> you might get sick of hearing it, but that's one of the most important verses in the whole Bible as it relates to prophetic application. Now, I would submit to you that there is a third color that needs to go up here. I would submit to you, and I'll <clears throat> color it blue, that there are another collection of prophecies. And we'll just call them blue. These being prophecies that they didn't know were prophecies. Okay, prophecies that they did not know were prophecies. And I would submit to you that Hosea 11.1 is one of those. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Because it says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. To a diligent Bible student, he views that verse as being historical, past, completed, does not have any clue that it's going to refer to a future prophetic event. Okay? And yet, because we see it fulfilled, we can take this one here and see that it's fulfilled here, and we can make the connection. Not because we're brilliant prophecy scholars, but because we read the Bible. And the Bible says... This fulfilled that. Okay? This fulfilled that. The Holy Spirit, in the inspired record of Scripture, says that in Matthew chapter 2, that Joseph and his family and their escape to Egypt and their return, this fulfilled what would otherwise be an unknown messianic prophecy. Are you with me? Oh, this is great. So I thought this morning was going to be so confusing. All right. So, let's also keep in mind, and why I'm spending all this time on a side trip. <clears throat> the, um, it's easy for us to look back with hindsight, with revealed scripture, to lay these things out. Okay? We don't. We can't claim that we're brilliant geniuses to understand that Matthew two fulfills uh, Hosea eleven, and somehow Daniel was a dummy because Daniel couldn't figure it out. Okay, Daniel wasn't a dummy. Ezekiel wasn't stupid. Jeremiah wasn't an idiot. All right, they were faithful, diligent Bible students and and faithful prophets. But the Father chose to keep these things hidden. Hidden from man, hidden from angels. Remember the phrase, things into which angels long to look. Alright? So, keep these things in mind. And by the way, the First Peter passage, in case uh, you want to find that, it's First Peter 1.10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, First Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Chew on that passage for the next 10 years. All right. So 
we have the distinction between first advent and second advent because we're in between the two and we've had mystery doctrine of church age information given to us, i.e. a New Testament. And we can see this whole list that's been fulfilled and this whole list that's been unfulfilled. Okay? And as a matter of fact, they were both given in the Old Testament, but they just weren't recognized as such. Both uh, the red and the blacks were given in the Old Testament, just the Old Testament prophets had no way to know. Now, we can rightly divide the red and the blacks. The question is, though, and I'll leave you with this to chew on, how many more of these are there that belong over here? Okay? We want to be very careful. Prophecy students and teachers and pastors and authors that lay out every nitty-gritty detail of tribulation, Armageddon, millennium, fullness of times. Almost nobody touches fullness of times. Okay, um, they, they teach prophetic scripture as if they have all the answers. And the fact being is that we may find a whole string of these blue ones. They're going to get fulfilled when Christ returns. And will be announced, this is to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet Haggai, through the prophet Zephaniah, through the, Hoff, the prophet Jeremiah. And we're going to find a whole category of fulfilled prophecies that all throughout the dispensation of the church, we never even recognized that those were second advent fulfilled prophecies. Okay? Something to chew on, something to think about. As we're dealing with the nature of fulfilled prophecies, let's recognize that the things that have been, the secret things of the Lord belong to Him, belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Alright? To the extent that God has revealed His Word, we are accountable to study to show ourselves approved. To the extent that He has not yet revealed Himself, we're on very shaky ground. We try to start speculating. We start to try to, to teach as if it's dogmatic and factual and all the rest. Okay? And that's just simply a word of caution based upon Matthew 2.15. Based upon Matthew 2.15. When it tells us this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, we recognize that it's not always clear that things that are revealed are in fact revealed. That things that are given, written previously ahead of time, are in fact prophetic. Because otherwise, Hosea 11.1 1 seems to be past historical. That will come up in your handout when we get to point 6 in the way that New Testament authors quote the Old Testament. Four primary ways that New Testament authors quote the Old Testament and... Um, we have that here in uh, Matthew 2.15, and so we'll focus on that as we have time. But for now, though, let's move on to point four and deal with Herod's massacre of the babies. Point four in our outline, Herod's massacre of the babies. When Herod saw that he had been tricked, by the Magi. He became very enraged 
and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Here's another event. Here's another fulfilled prophecy. Sort of. Okay. We're going to go back to that one too. Just like we went back to Hosea, we're going to go back and look at this one. All right. Herod's massacre of the babies. Clearly, here is an evil one. Here is one who is of the evil one. Here is murder motivated by a satanic influence. But let's look at it. The encyclopedia gives us some good information on Herod. Herod, by the way, is one of the most documented characters in the ancient world. Documented by Roman sources, Greek sources, Egyptian sources. Cleopatra hated his guts. All right. So there are plenty of records, secular records, in addition to the biblical record as it pertains to Herod. In his last years, Herod was subject to some sort of insanity, and he became bloodthirsty. He executed in 6 B.C. Aristobulus and Alexander, his two sons, by Mariamne, the granddaughter of Hyrcanus II. This was, remember, his, his link, his claim to legitimacy among the Jews. He was not Jewish, he was Edomite, he was... Not a descendant of Jacob, he was a descendant of Esau. So he wasn't a Jew, he was an Edomite. The, the Latins, the Romans called them Edomians. Um, as far as the Romans were concerned, a, a Jew and an Edomite, what's the difference? You know, let's take an Edomite and put him on the Jewish throne. <laughs> you know, Romans are a bit stupid there in that regard. Uh, to the Jews, there's a huge difference between the Jews and the Edomites. There's the difference between Jacob and Esau. It's the difference between Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It's the difference between the child of promise and uh, the child who rejected the, uh, the Lord in any event. Um, as uh, a part of his attempt to claim some kind of legitimacy to a Jewish throne, he married Mariamne. Mariamne was a part of the Hasmonean family, the Hasmonean dynasty, granddaughter of Hyrcanus II. If you're real rusty on your intertestamental history, um, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Hasmoneans, the Hyrcanus family, no, <laughs> the Maccabees, all right, uh, this is in between Old Testament and New Testament, this was, um, amazingly enough, this was a period of time that the Jews today look back as a golden age. They look back as a wonderful time, a time of prosperity, a time of blessing. In reality, it was a time of rebellion. Okay, God the Father <clears throat> had already outlined a series of empires that would dominate, starting with Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And a faithful Jewish Bible student that was obeying and following the, the uh, prophecies of Daniel would have recognized the succeeding empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. See, well, during the dominion of the Greeks, the Seleucid Greeks, um, the Jews rebelled. And the Jews under a Levite, uh, under 
the Maccabees under the, the Levite. The Maccabee family was, was a Levitical family. They threw off the rule of the Greeks. And they gained their independence, as a matter of fact. And this... Um, and then they established a, a throne. They established a kingdom. Now, it didn't last too long, and they were conquered by the Romans. In fact, the only reason they were able to throw off, the, the Greeks could have squished them, but the Greeks were so busy themselves getting conquered by the Romans. All right. By the way, prophetically, this is all outlined in, in Daniel chapter 11. Historically, you can read about it in the history books. Um, so the Jews managed to get their own kingdom. And had a number of kings in this dynasty, the Hasmonean dynasty of, of uh, the, the Maccabean family and so forth. They were Levites, as I have said. They were not from the tribe of Judah. Now, a faithful Jewish Bible student from the Old Testament would have understood that the, the, the rule, the rulership needs to be from the son of David on a Davidic throne in the, from the tribe of Judah. That Levites have no business ruling a uh, the priests have no business being kings and ruling over this throne ruling over the jewish people okay jesus christ will eventually fulfill the king priest where he will unite the throne and the priesthood and, and bring harmony between those two offices but not until jesus christ so does that happen and so we recognize the hasmonean kingdom is a total rebellion against the plan of god and it didn't last very long, and Rome came in, um, Pompey came in and conquered Jerusalem and smashed the Hasmonean dynasty and so forth. Eventually, uh, Herod is established as a, as a puppet, as a, a puppet king, a vassal king, and allowed to be king of the Jews. So, but his tie to the Jewish people was by marrying that daughter, the granddaughter of Hyrcanus II, and that giving him, in his mind anyway, a legitimacy to the Hasmonean throne. Nominally, he, the, the Hasmonean throne still existed under the Herodians, under uh, Herod's rule. Okay, But it was certainly not a, a Jewish throne. So, <clears throat> But the history books record this insanity at the end of his life where he became bloodthirsty, he executed Aristobulus and Alexander, his sons by Mariamne. So, so much for perpetuating the Hasmonean dynasty, <laughs> so much for perpetuating the myth of the legitimacy uh, to, the, uh, to the throne of Her John Hyrcanus. He executed then two years later in 4 BC Antipater, the son of his first wife. Oh, by the way, yeah, he had to divorce this woman in order to marry the granddaughter of, of John Hyrcanus. <laughs> so... There was another heir that was still around. He uh, began to suspect that Antipater was actually behind the conspiracy that caused him to murder the other two sons. <laughs> Wonderful family, isn't it? You thought there was uh, politics and disunity in your family. Well, this, uh, this is something else. This family was a bunch of winners. And uh, so in 4 BC, he executes Antipater when he finds out that Antipater had instigated the intrigues that led to the execution of the other two sons two years prior. Well, history book describes insanity. The Bible describes the plan of God and describes the angelic conflict and describes what's really going on. Subpoint A. In Herod's cosmic way of thinking, he had been tripped by the Magi. In Herod's cosmic way of thinking, he had been tricked 
by the Magi. Now, when I say cosmic, and I spell it with a K, K-O-S-M-I-C, cosmic, I'm referring to a system of thinking that is produced by the world system, the cosmos, a way of thinking that is generated by an unbeliever living in the cosmos. Sadly enough, believers can develop a cosmic thinking as well. If we depart from the light and walk in darkness, we start thinking along the lines of the world's way of thinking. All I mean by cosmic is the world's way of thinking. The world is the cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. And so if I stop thinking divine viewpoint, if I get out of fellowship and start walking in darkness and start having my mind uh, conformed, then this is the way of thinking I'm going to have. Remember Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. If you are not transformed, you will be conformed. It is, uh, <clears throat> it is an either or circumstance in Romans 12 too. do not be conformed to this cosmos, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right. You're under the filling of the Holy Spirit. You're humble to the teaching of God's Word. You're in Bible class. The Word of God is renewing your mind. You're, get, you're being given God's way of thinking. What a blessing. But in Herod's cosmic way of thinking, conformed to this world, he, in his mind, he'd been tricked. In his mind, he had been tricked. See, sometimes the reality doesn't matter. If you believe something's true, well then, by golly, it's true. If in my way of thinking is true, well, that has just become my reality. And cosmic thinking is good for that. Cosmic thinking is good for taking unreality and making it reality. Cosmic thinking convinces us that we're, um, that we're worthless. When divine viewpoint says we're choice and precious in the sight of God and He gave His Son to die on our behalf that He could redeem us. Cosmic thinking tells us there's no hope. When divine viewpoint tells us that the promises of God are yes and amen. You see that difference between cosmic thinking and divine viewpoint? Empizo is the Greek word for delusion, for uh, deception. Empizo, number 1702. We pointed out last uh, week... When in last week we pointed out all the different words for depart, we went to Vine's Dictionary and we found 24 different Greek words for depart or go. All right. Well, there are lots of different words for deceive. To lie, to deceive, to mislead, to, to ensnare, to betray. There's any number of, of words for that. The idea here, the flavor of empizo, is, yes, it's deception, but it is a, it is a mocking deception. It is a trick that, that ridicules your intelligence, that mocks your authority, that, that really just absolutely communicates your worthlessness. See, I kind of thought the Longhorns did that last week. All right, I'm back on football again. When they're up by 30 points and they fake a field goal. You know, what is that? Okay, it was a trick play. But you're playing rice. <laughs> you're up by 30. It's not like the game's on the line. It's not like you need this trick play to win the game or prevail over your enemy. It's just, you know, 
It's just you don't want to settle for three points when you can get seven. And so they pull a trick play. They pull a, a, uh, a fake field goal. And I thought, you know, what is that? That's just mocking. That's belittling to, uh, to the other team. You know, when you roll up the score and pile up the points and do these things. In my mind anyway, but then again, <laughs> maybe Mac Brown's trying to keep his job. I don't know. But anyway, that's what impizo, to, to play with, to mock, to delude, to trick someone so as to make a fool of the person. It's not only just deceiving them and tricking them, but in the end result, uh, not only do you achieve your purposes, but they are made out to be idiots. Jeremiah 10.15 is a good uh, use of it here in the Septuagint Greek that uh, I think spells out quite well the context of what we're dealing with and what uh, Herod felt insulted and tricked and ridiculed and, and all of that. Jeremiah 10:15. You know, it's talking about idolatry here. Verse 14 says, uh, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge, Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. You know, not much of a god when you have to make him in the first place. When, when you have to have a goldsmith fashion a gold idol or a silversmith fashion a silver idol, how good's the idol? Well, how good's the goldsmith? They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. See, Israel's made all these idols for themselves. They're worshiping and serving them, but it is just a sad mockery. Just a sad mockery. And that's how Herod feels here. Because he's been insulted. These guys, these magi, were supposed to come back and report to him. After all, he is the king, after all. These guys from the east that show up and say where's king of the jews what do you mean where's the king of the jews i'm king of the jews what are you guys talking about where is he who has been born king of the jews you guys go find that baby come back report to me i'm the king of the jews and then they don't come back they don't come back he had sent them to bethlehem to find this child but they didn't come back well how dare they i'm the king of the jews after all so he saw that he had been tricked. In his cosmic way of thinking, he had been tricked. We know he wasn't. But let's not confuse objective reality with the subjective delusional reality of cosmic thinking. And sometimes I really believe that we're hampered in our evangelism because we look at things too biblically. We look at things objectively in terms of reality, in terms of sin and salvation and grace, and we see things so clearly with divine viewpoint, and we fail to consider that this unbeliever we're dealing with is still under cosmic delusion. And so things that are to us normal, it boggles the mind how they cling to evolution, for example, and they want to you know, cling to all these systems of deceit and, and lies and evil and all the rest. Well, that's cosmic delusional thinking. There's a proverb that addresses this. Subpoint B. A wicked ruler is destructive to those he rules. Proverbs 28 and verse 15. And what a fulfillment. I mean, you can find, you can find examples of this throughout the 
Old Testament, New Testament. Herod perhaps illustrates this proverb the best. I think Herod, I think uh, Pharaoh illustrates it pretty well. <laughs> how how destructive was Pharaoh to all of his people when he submitted Egypt to those ten plagues? You know, Pharaoh is the wicked ruler and his people suffered for it through boils and darkness and flies and gnats and blood and the, the death of the firstborn and, and all of that. A wicked ruler is destructive to those he rules. Why does God allow wicked rulers to ascend to the thrones of their nations? Because it's the will of God to judge those nations. And in judgment, he gives them the ruler that will produce that judgment. A wicked ruler is destructive to those he rules. Proverbs 28.15 So, you may take this verse and be convicted and be prayerful for our leaders, as we're told to be prayerful for our leaders. We may have a change of leaders coming up, or we may not. If uh, we re-elect a president or don't re-elect a president, well, let's bear in mind that we're not the ones making that choice, are we? Let's not get prideful that, well, the American vote determines who's going to be the president. God the Father determines who's going to be our next president. Proverbs 28, uh, 15. I like verse 14. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. It's your choice. Blessings or calamity. What do you want? Are you going to fear the Lord or are you going to harden your heart? Verse 15, like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. Destructive to those that he rules. And here's Herod, the example of that. Here's the, all these residents of Bethlehem are his subjects. He's ruling them. He's, he should be protecting them. Isn't government supposed to be a source of blessing and not fear? If they're not wrongdoers, if they're obeying the king, if they're... Well, in any event, the issue is there. We will come back to this and we will examine the satanic motivation under subpoint C. And uh, then we will see the faithfulness of God under subpoint D. Because a bunch of dead babies is not good. It's not good, let's face it. Not good... For the, for the babies, <laughs> not good for the mothers, not good for the families, not good for the village, for the tribe, okay? But it works together for good. God the Father allowed it to happen. And so we will break that down there as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Thank you for this study, Father. And as we examine these scriptures, I pray that you would make them real to each one of us. I pray that you would give us insight and understanding not only for these particular passages that we've examined, but in a much broader sense for uh, to have a greater um, appreciation of the grace eternal plan of the ages, to, to start viewing things from Alpha to Omega, to start viewing things with big picture, to recognize what you're doing and how you're doing it, to recognize, Father, that we're not just simply slaves to obey mindlessly, but we are sons and, and we are adult sons with full privilege. We are fellow workers you issue not only commands, but explanations. And we should listen to your explanations. We should know your thinking. We should understand your purposes. 
We should be willing to think for ourselves and as adult sons, we should be willing to serve you on the basis of your good pleasure, on the basis of your priorities, on the basis of your intentions. So, Father, I thank you for the maturity that comes through an understanding of your word. I thank you for growth that occurs through the renewing of our mind. I thank you, Father, that we're not simply limited to obeying the explicit commands. uh, But, Father, I thank you that through growth we can learn that we can serve in our own volition, not having to be told what to do all the time, every time, but knowing your will, knowing your purpose, and knowing what to do and doing it even without being told. So, Father, these are the areas of growth that we want to attain to. These are the blessings of your word to us through the Scriptures. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.